God created the earth in six days. On the seventh day, he rested from creation. But on the eighth day, did he get back up so he could start churning out souls? In this episode, we're going to see if we can answer that. You're listening to Onward in the Faith with Ray Burns. Ray is dedicated to equipping Christians to understand why they believe what they believe so that they can keep moving onward in their faith toward maturity in Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry financially, visit patreon.com slash onwardinthefaith. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. And make sure you visit onwardinthefaith.com where you can read hundreds of articles about every area of the Christian life. Now here's Ray with today's topic. In the last episode, we talked about the idea of where the soul comes from, and we talked about the soul bank. In other words, this idea that souls are kind of always existing somewhere in just a big container of souls somewhere in the spiritual realm, and when a new soul is born, God plugs it in. We talked about some really big issues with that one and why we probably shouldn't hold to that one. So today we're going to talk about what is probably the most widely held belief, and that is the idea that when a new being is conceived, when, when, a, when a mother and father come together and they make a baby, God creates a new soul and puts that soul into the baby. Now, if you like fancy names, the best name I found for this one is creationism, which obviously, if you hang around Christianity much, you know that creationism is also the idea that God created the universe. So don't confuse the two. You can hold to the idea that God created the universe without holding that God creates a new soul every time a baby is born or a baby is conceived. But if you like fancy words, if you like to have labels for things, that's the best one I've been able to find. So let's just jump right into it because this is a very straightforward one, right? This is one that we probably all, without even realizing it, just hold. So let's just say, does the Bible support it, right? Let's just get straight into it. Well, we can find some comfort in knowing that because of what we see in God's word, the early church actually held to this one pretty well. Uh, and, you know, kind of following their way of thinking and how they came to that conclusion and how we throughout history have come to the idea that God creates souls, uh, we can je- dial it back all the way back to Genesis 2-7, which we looked at last time, but this time is going to give us kind of a different perspective on the origin of the soul. So it says, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So within this verse, we see a two-part aspect of man's creation. We see that God forms the body, and then he breathes life into the body, right? He, he doesn't just fill his lungs with air, but he, he gives him soul and spirit. He gives him f- everything that he needs. And only then, only when God has physically formed man and then given him a soul, given him spirit, or what we see here as the breath of life, then we see that he becomes a living being or he comes into full existence because he wasn't Adam when he was just formed from the ground. He wasn't Adam when his soul was kind of wherever it was before then. It was only once body and soul were together that God declared him to be existing, that Adam was an actual being. So from very creation, it seems to support this idea of creationism. But we also see other Old Testament writers playing on this idea of it's being God who creates the soul in man. In Isaiah 42, 5, we see it says, Thus the Lord God, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. So just like in Genesis, we see God giving someone their breath, which is a physical means of existence, but also he gives them their spirit. 
And again, we need to realize it's not just that we, it's this idea of, oh, God is sovereign, God is in control. No, based on what we see in Isaiah, it seems to go right alongside with what we see in Genesis 2-7, which is the idea that God is an active participant in the creation of every single human being. And we can see this once again in Zechariah 12-1. It says, The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord, who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Again, Isaiah, Zechariah, they're all calling back to this original creation account in Genesis, the idea that God is the one who forms the earth. He is the one who forms the heavens, but he's also the one who forms man. It's not just this random thing that happened. God was an active participant. One-to-one, he made very specific things happen, both in how the earth was created, how the universe was created, and also how human beings were created. And so when they talk about how God did that then, he's also the one who we would say does that now. And so what's interesting here is that when these writers are saying this, they're not teaching science, right? They're not trying to make these big theological claims. They are simply just stating a fact that was so assumed for them that it's like us today saying God is good, right? It's just, it's just a common phrase. It's a common understanding that everyone would have immediately understood. And so this, this reality that God is the one who forms the spirit of man seems to be really just integrated into the basic thought of the people of those days. And so this seems really cut and dry then, right? I mean, the Bible says God creates the heavens and the earth, and the Bible says that God creates man, both physically and his spirit. So what on earth could we have to argue about? You know, how could we possibly say that, oh, well, God's word doesn't actually say what we seem to think God's word actually clearly says? Well, let's try. Because despite what is implied in Genesis and the prophets, the Bible actually doesn't outright claim that God is actively creating souls this very day. Yes, God is the one who formed Adam. God is the one who gave him his soul. But just because God did it once doesn't mean that he is continuing to do it. Just like he's not continuing to make the world. He's not continuing to, to you know, as the poetic language says, to stretch the heavens out. And as we understand science more and more, we know that God is not actively creating human beings in the same sense that he created Adam from the dust of the ground, because we know how science works. We know where babies come from. And if you don't, uh, good luck, I guess. But all that being said, let's look at some more specific problems that we actually see with the idea of, cre- of creationism when it comes to the soul. And I kind of hinted at this with my intro. But problem number one that we have to ask ourselves is, is God still creating today? And if you haven't noticed after the first episode, now this one, I'm just going to get a little bit nerdy with all this stuff because I just find the discussion of the soul fascinating. And so when it comes to does God still create today, we can say that, well, God could still create. And yes, God could still create. God can do anything. But what we also know is that upon creation, God in his perfection set the world up in such a way that it would not require his continued creation, but instead it would continue on its own. Now, one way we see this is a scientific principle called the conservation of mass. Now, I'm not a super science nerd. I'm sure any that are listening to this can probably find some, you know, more specific and better explanations of this. But as a layman, 
my best way to explain this idea of the conservation of mass, or really what God set up for his universe to keep going, is that nothing in the universe is actually created or destroyed. And what that means is that on a molecular level, right, with the atoms, with the teeny tiny things that we can't see, we still have the same amount today as we had upon creation. So even though we might look at a piece of paper burning or water evaporating or things like that, even though what we can observe seems to disappear, what we actually know is that these things are, for lack of a better word, they are transformed, they are changed, they take on new forms. But the building blocks, right, the little Lego pieces that make them up are still in existence. And biblically, this makes sense. In Genesis 2-3, right, going all the way back to the creation account, it says that God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. So we know that God spent six days creating and then he rested on the seventh. Now, of course, we know that God didn't need to rest. You know, we need to, to keep that clear. It's not like God was had to just, you know, create a chair and then lay back and create a fan and fan himself because he was just so exhausted from all his effort. God doesn't need rest. We know that God did this to, to basically model to his people our need to not just keep going, but to rest. And we know, as we see in the New Testament, that that rest was physical, but we also know that Jesus Christ is our spiritual rest, right? That the Sabbath was always meant not just to be this law that was kept, but to be something that would always point toward Israel's and eventually Gentiles like us, our need for rest from our works, not physical works, but our spiritual works, our attempts to do good, that Jesus is our rest. And this might seem just slightly unrelated, but just kind of stick with me because it's important for us to see how Christ is our rest and what God resting on the seventh may have ultimately meant for us. So we see this kind of even further explained in Hebrews. Uh, this is in chapter four. And if you want to pause this or, you know, go back later, it's verses. Uh, so it's Hebrews chapter four, verses one through 11. Uh, but I'm just going to hit on some of the most relevant parts. And that is in verses one to four. It says, therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any of you may seem to come short of it. And then towards the end of verse three, he says, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he had said somewhere concerning the seventh day and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. So here we see the writer of Hebrews equating God's resting physically or our understanding of physically, right? God resting from his efforts of creating with our need to enter into the rest found in Jesus Christ. Now, let's tie all this together with where creationism kind of hits a wrong note and doesn't really line up with this idea. And that is that God made the Sabbath to model to us what we need to do physically, right? It is good for us, we know, to rest, to not just constantly be going, whether on a day-to-day -day basis or seven days a week. We know that we physically were made by a good and loving God to rest, recharge, and in a way, really just enjoy the creation that we have, right? Enjoy all the things that we are working for. But at the same, in the same way, we also realize that we are striving to enter the rest of Jesus Christ. We want to have that, that perfect rest in him from our sins and trying to be good enough and trying to keep the law. And when we ask Christ to save us, that is what we get. We get his work of being perfect 
applied to us as sinners who do not deserve it, but we are given it. We are allowed to rest from our need to keep the law in order to please God because Jesus Christ paid it all for us. And so I think that we can, without the Bible explicitly saying it, I think that we can connect these two and say that just as Jesus is our final rest, God modeled that in his own rest in that he he worked and he created, but then he stopped. He was done. And so I think all this works together to imply that God worked for seven days or whatever your views of creation are, but God worked for what the Bible says is seven days, and then he rested on the seventh. And we don't really see any indication that he got up on day eight and went at it again. It seems that God created, he set up rules of the universe so that creation would continue right? We talked about that conservation of mass, how the universe has just as much stuff in it now as it always has on a molecular level. And we can see that it just, it, there's nothing in the Bible that seems to imply that God is, is still creating something today. And so, you know, we need to realize that, you know, could God create, could he still create souls? Yes. Could he still create cows? Yes. But just because God can, doesn't mean he does. And if we're going to say that God is not creating things physically, what we need to ask ourselves is, is he still creating things spiritually? And as we'll talk about in episode three, we'll get a really big answer into why I think we can say no, that God created all physical and spiritual things that his universe needed in the six days of creation. And on the seventh day, he stopped creating physical things and also creating souls. And then... Big problem number two that we see with this idea of creationism of the soul is that just like with the soul bank theory, if we believe that God creates souls, what we end up doing is we almost necessitate embracing a very old heresy that is actually more prevalent today than we realize, and that is Gnosticism. Now, I shared this in episode one. And so I'm going to go over it again in case you have forgotten or you missed that last one. But if you want, you know, a a more expanded discussion, you can go check out the first part of this series. But the problem specifically with creationism is that if God creates souls, then we run into problems when we consider how sin affects not just our bodies, but our soul as well. So Romans 12:5 says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So laid out very plainly, we carry the guilt of Adam's sin, his first disobedience on us as a human race. So while Christ had to pay the penalty for our specific sins, you know, every time we yell at our kids, We've, you know, stolen something, told a lie to our boss, whatever. While Christ had to be punished for God's wrath on those specific sins, we also know that through, you know, in this Romans 12, 5 verse, we see that death itself, you know, this guilt of sin spread to all people. So every baby who is born already has this sin guilt before they are even able to sin themselves. They carry a sin guilt on them. You know, I say, whoa, 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 wait, that doesn't sound right. You know, babies can't, can't be sinful. Well, if you've had babies, maybe you're not saying that. But in terms of God's wrath, we have to say, well, babies can't choose to sin. So how could that be? Well, we can see this discussed by David in Psalm 51.5. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin 
my mother conceived me. In other words, David here is acknowledging that his sin doesn't just come from him being five years old and making his very first decision to willfully sin. He is saying that he was born sinful. He was born a sinner, right? And this goes back to the age-old question of, are we sinners because we've committed sin? Or do we sin because we are born sinners? And here, David would seem to go with that second option of, we sin, we act as enemies of God because we are born hating him. We are born loving sin. We are born prideful. Now, if that is true, that we have inherited Adam's sin and that, you know, upon birth, we, we carry this guilt with us, then this, this leaves us two options. Either God creates a sinful soul and adds Adam's guilt to that. In other words, a perfect God creates something sinful and imperfect, or our soul is perfect when God creates it, but because it touches our nasty sin-drenched bodies, our soul becomes tainted and we then become guilty in our soul because of the corruption of our bodies. Now, we don't want to say the second, the first one, right? We don't want to say, oh, well, God purposely creates sinful people he purposely makes them guilty. He he creates them to hate them. You know, we don't want to say that. So, obviously, when God creates our souls, they are perfect, but because we are it's put into a sinful body, right? Something that carries the the sin of Adam in its DNA maybe, then that's when that soul becomes tainted, it becomes broken, it becomes guilty before God. Well, if that's where we're going to go with it, then we are actually running headfirst into heresy because that is exactly what Gnosticism, which is a heresy that the early church spent a lot of energy fighting against, would believe. Because at its very core, what Gnosticism teaches is that the spiritual things of the world, right, our souls, spirits, you know, God in his, his spiritual nature, you know, these are all perfect things. These things are uncorrupted, but it's the physical world and everything about the physical world that is wrong and that corrupts our, our souls. And so in Gnosticism, your greatest goal in life isn't to act good, but to remove yourself from the world as much as you can so that your naturally good spirit can thrive and so that you can attain a higher level of spirituality. So Gnosticism wouldn't just teach that our, our physical bodies are sinful. They would even teach that caring about things of the world is sinful. You know, money and possessions and things like that. You know, it's almost a very Buddhist kind of mentality where you want to remove yourself from anything physical in the world because anything solid, anything material is evil and wicked. It's of the devil. But it's those spiritual things that are pure and good and that we should, you know, attain to. And so... You know, that works as kind of a pagan philosophy, but then in the early church, we see that getting adopted into Christianity, and they went so far as saying that, you know, oh, well, Jesus was just a spirit who appeared to be human. He appeared to be physical, but within the Gnostic idea, Christ couldn't have had a physical body because that would have made him imperfect and impure, and so that's why some of the, the you know, writers of the New Testament have to specifically point out that, no, Jesus was physical. He, he really was a physical being. And so, again, kind of coming all the way back around, the idea of, you know, God creating a soul and then that soul becoming corrupted, what we ultimately have to say is that God creates something perfect, 
but then he puts it in something physical and then it becomes corrupted. So we also then have to go against what the Bible clearly shows is that it's not just physical things that are evil, right? We think that it's just, you know, in this Gnostic idea that we accidentally adopt, we think that, oh, well, it's, it's physical that's bad. It's our, it's our flesh. It's, it's our bodies that are corrupting it because it carries the weight of Adam's sin. But no, the Bible is very clear that, that it's not just the physical world that makes us sin. It's our desires, right? It's our sin nature that is inherent to who we are and to what we are born with. That is what leads us to sin. So it's not money that's evil. It's the love of money. That's a spiritual thing. It's not, you know, standing up so that people can, you know, see you or praise you that might be the evil thing. It's not about acquiring wealth or possessions. It's the evil thing. It's our pride. It's our greed. It's our spiritual desires and how they are misplaced and made idolatrous. That is the problem. And that is where we run into our issues when we love everything else more than God. But it's not because we are loving the physical world that's our problem. It's just that the physical world is very easy for us, right? It's a very good target for our pride, for our greed, and for our constant and rampant idolatry. But under a creationism of the soul mentality, what we have to say is that the physical realm itself is the problem, that spiritually we are inherently good. It's just that we have to overcome this physical corruption that taints our soul, that that makes it broken, that makes it dirty. And you know, I'm, I'm going to go you know, a little further than what I have written down for my notes here. But, you know, this very idea, you know, if you're not sold yet on the huge problem with creationism is that it really goes against what we are looking forward to when Christ returns and eventually remakes the whole world. Because, you know, when we read about what's coming next, you know, especially in Revelation, we see that God is going to recreate everything. He's going to essentially make things how they were supposed to be. He's going to make all things new, not just physical things, because we know that God's creating a new heavens and a new earth. We know that we are going to have new and glorified bodies. And we also know that because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, that our stained souls have been made pure. Christ's righteousness has been applied to us so that on the day of judgment, as we stand before Christ, we're going to know that we are written in the Lamb's book of life and that all of our debts, all of our sin, everything that makes us corrupt has been paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. And that's part of what it means that he's making all things new. We're getting new and pure and perfect bodies, but we ourselves, our desires are also paid for and purified by Jesus Christ on the cross. And while today we are still fighting that old sin nature, which is very much spiritual, even though we are still fighting that today, it is fighting against our new nature in Jesus Christ, the one that he gives us when he applied his righteousness to us in exchange for our filthy rags. And so this idea that, you know, physical bad and spiritual good, it just doesn't make sense with what God is promising to restore in the new heavens and the new earth, because everything is going to be new. Everything is going to be how it was always meant to be because we were always meant to be physical beings and we were always meant to be spiritual beings, but both things have been broken by sin. And that is why we hate sin so much. That is why we want to reject 
the works of the flesh in our lives. You know, go read Galatians chapter five, I think it's verses 18 and on where it talks about, you know, the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. That is why that matters so much for us because the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit are both spiritually based. It's just a question of, are we obeying our old man, our old spiritual selves, or are we going to obey God's work in our lives through the Holy Spirit's working? And so as I wrap this up, I don't want you to get me wrong because the idea of creationism is widely held throughout, I assume, most Christians today because it's just what makes sense. The, the idea of a soul bank, at first glance, maybe we could come up with it, but with basic scrutiny, we know that the idea of souls always existing just doesn't make sense. So what else are we left with? Because the Bible doesn't seem very clear on where our souls come from. And as people of God, we know that the soul is very much a real thing, that we are not just synapses in our brains firing and giving us personality and thoughts and desires. We know that our soul and our bodies work together to make us who we are. We know where our body comes from. So where does our soul come from? And at the end of the day, creation of the soul just makes sense because it's really the only other option out there, it seems. And so, you know, good people I know still believe that God creates souls every day. You know, people who, who I know are men and women who just love God. You know, they, they would still believe that or teach that. And so I'm not saying that someone is, you know, unbiblical or, or even dumb for believing that. You know, and even if you get to the end of this episode and you're still sold on the idea of God creating new souls every time, you know, that's this episode is in no way somehow talking down to someone for believing it. The goal of this episode and the last episode and the next episode is just to really look at the options that we have for where souls come from and whether they hold up not to logic, not to tradition, but do they hold up to what is seen throughout God's word? The soul bank, I don't think does. I think most of us would agree with that. The creation of souls, I still don't think stands up. I still don't think that at the very base level, the idea that God is still creating, even though he rested, and by all evidence, he's still resting, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't seem to hold up to what is seen, not just in individual verses, but throughout the Bible, we just don't see God creating anymore. And so if God is not creating the physical, but the physical universe still continues while being upheld by the power of Christ, as we see in Colossians, if that is continuing because God said it that way, then what do we do about the soul? Where does, where does that aspect of us come from? And so next week, we're going to talk about what I believe is the most convincing theory. It is one that not a lot of people talk about, and maybe even after listening to it, not a lot of people are going to want to believe because it seems so weird and so against anything that anyone ever talks about when it comes to the soul. And if you want a little bit of a teaser, next week, we're going to be talking about the birds and the bees. Thank you for listening to this episode of Onward in the Faith. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can support me every month by going to patreon.com slash onward in the faith, or you can follow a link in the show notes where you can give a one-time donation. I hope this episode helps you keep moving onward in your faith toward maturity in Christ.